You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Relations between the United States and Russia, and previously the Soviet Union, have certainly had their ups and downs. But even during the Cold War, while there were disagreements and threats, the two parties were usually able to reach accommodation without the drama that now seems to exist. Whether in the Middle East, Europe, or even here at home, Russia under the thumb of President Vladimir Putin is increasingly viewed as a worrisome threat. My guest, Mike McFall, served as U.S. Ambassador to the Russian Federation from 2012 to 2014. Prior to assuming that position, he worked on President Obama's National Security Council as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director of Russian and Eurasian Affairs. A native of Montana, he earned his undergraduate and master's degrees at Stanford University, where he is now a professor of political science and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. A Rhodes Scholar, he earned his doctorate in 1991, which no doubt was an exciting time to be a Soviet specialist. Ambassador McFall is the author of From Cold War to Hot Peace, which was published just last year. It's great to have you with us. Sure, thanks for having me. I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you to share with our listeners how your academic and intellectual interest took you from a study of African revolutionary movements to then Soviet Union. And I bet you gave your mother a good cause to worry. Well, I did. There, there's kind of two pivots that got to the place that eventually, you know, I became a scholar of Russian studies. The first started in high school in Montana, Bozeman, Montana. That's mm-hmm. where I was a junior in high school. And I joined the debate team. And I joined, by the way, to get an easy A. I wasn't that interested in debate. I was just told it was an easy way to get your English credit. By my neighbor, I just moved to Bozeman that year. The topic of debate that year was how to improve U.S. trade policy. And so my partner and I, we ran a case about trying to increase trade with the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And that's when I first got interested in U.S.-Soviet relations. So that's 1979, 1980. Uh, And the particular thing we ran on is we wanted to lift something called the Jackson-Vanik Amendment to the 1974 Trade Act. And 30 years later, as part of the Obama administration, I was actually part of the team that did that. So it took us 30 years uh, to realize my high school debate plan. But uh, that was the first spark. By the way, my debate partner was a guy named Steve Daines, who's now Senator Steve Daines from Montana. So we were a pretty good team. You were a pretty good team. Yeah. Uh, Democrats and Republicans working together, by the way, back then. And still to this day, Steve's a good guy. It may happen again. It may happen again. And he's been supportive of me and uh, different things we've done together. But the revolutionary Africa things, I'm glad you asked that, because very rarely do people know that when I went to write my PhD at Oxford, I was writing about Southern Africa kind of gotten away from Russia. I was interested in political change as a topic Mm -hmm. and the international influences of political change. And there wasn't much political change happening in the Soviet Union at that time. So I pivoted and I learned Portuguese and I lived in Zimbabwe and I was writing about that period. And I took a trip uh, in the spring of 1988 to the Soviet Union to interview some Russian scholars that worked on what we would now call fomenting communist revolution. They had a more euphemistic way to describe their work back then. And I gave a talk at the African Institute in Moscow. And everybody kind of looked at me strangely. Who's this American in Moscow? You know, I'm sure they all thought I was a CIA agent. In fact, I actually know that now. They all thought I was working for the CIA. But there was one woman, Tanya Krestopipseva is her name, who was intrigued by my talk and who followed me out of the African Institute 
and we spent some time chatting. And when she finally figured out what I was interested in academically, she said, if you're interested in political change, forget about Angola. Political change is happening here in the Soviet Union, and you should be studying what's happening here internally. And that happen chance meeting with Tanya in the spring of 1998, that, was the spark. that changed my trajectory. And she was right well ahead of her time, and, and ever since then I've been working on And Russian you really did affairs. hit it just right as far as timing. Yes. How Putin rose to power has always intrigued me. And in your book, you talk about that a bit, and I think our listeners would enjoy hearing it. Why did Boris Yeltsin elevate Putin to prime minister rather than pick someone from the political class? Also, did, did he really understand what he was getting? Great question, and I don't know the answer to your second part, right? Mm -hmm. But Putin's a completely accidental president, to your point. I actually met him in the spring of 1991. I've known Putin for a long time. Not sure we're Facebook friends anymore. <laughs> Maybe we are, given what goes on on Facebook. But I met him when he was the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. Mm -hmm. He worked for a very charismatic figure. Anatoly Subchuk was his name. Uh, but he was just a bureaucrat. He was in charge of international affairs, and, and I was there with an American NGO doing democracy work, by the way, at the invitation which of Which he remembers. Chuck, which he does remember. Uh, he remembers well. Yeah. But we were there at the invitation of his boss. But I tell you that story because he was always around the political class. He was never a political leader. And when Sobchak lost an election, by the way, that doesn't happen very often in, the, in these days, but Putin was without a job. And he approached his friends working for Yeltsin in Moscow. And that's how he showed up in Moscow and worked a kind of mid-level bureaucrat in the Kremlin. He doesn't want people to remember that, right? He wants to say there was the Yeltsin era, which was horrible, and then I came and saved Russia. But he, for several years, worked for Boris Yeltsin. But he was not the heir apparent, to your question. There's another guy, Boris Nemtsov was his name. Yeltsin had picked him to succeed him. He was a mayor in a town called Nizhny Novgorod, mm -hmm. had been elected twice, was a charismatic, Western-leaning guy. He was, a, he was a good friend of mine before being assassinated in 2015. Everybody knew that that was the plan. So Nemtsov came from Nizhny Novgorod, became the first deputy prime minister, and was being cultivated. And then 1998, there was a financial crash, you may remember, because it wasn't just in Russia. It was all over the world, it didn't start in Russia but it had giant economic negative consequences in Russia, and the government was forced to resign as a result of that. And Yeltsin couldn't get a liberal candidate through the parliament. And that's when he chose Putin, and he became a prime minister. Not approval rating, his recognition rating at the time he became prime minister was 5%. Amazing. 95% didn't know who he was. And then he chose him, I think, out of stability reasons, and, but I think the consequences were not what Yeltsin intended. I want to ask you about another prime minister that you had a lot of interaction with, and that is Medvedev. When he was prime minister the first time and then president, he was in the news all the time. I really did have to go check again to be sure that he was still prime minister. Yes. I mean, he really has no role now. I mean, yeah. he's totally disappeared. Yeah, tragic figure in my opinion. He was president at the time that I joined the Obama administration in January 2009. And you really did have a good relationship with him. I did personally. President Obama did especially. Yeah. Uh, they were both young guys, kind of reformers, lawyers. Medvedev definitely wanted to change the dynamic in U.S.-Russian relations, as did Obama. And for a period, as I write about in the book, they did get some really big things done together. And, you know, my sense of being in the room with Medvedev in those years is that he had aspirations to be a gradual modernizer. 
hmm. on both the political and economic front. Not a radical modernizer. And he had learned the mistakes of Gorbachev. He didn't want to go that fast. And then two, he couldn't go that fast because the prime minister at the time was this guy named Vladimir Putin. So he always had to work within the constraints of what Putin might want or allow him to do. I think the, you know, tragically, paradoxically, the moment that I think Putin gave up on him was one of the most cooperative moments in U.S.-Russian relations. And that had to do with the world's response to the Arab Spring, and particularly in Libya. Gaddafi was going to go into the city of Benghazi and slaughter everybody. At least that was our intelligence estimate. We decided it was a debate in the Obama administration, but we decided we should try to stop it. But we weren't going to do that unless we had a UN Security Council resolution. And to have that, we needed Russia to sign off on it. And Medvedev did. I was at the meeting when he did. It was shocking that he did. Two days later, however, Putin said that was a big mistake. I think that's when Putin decided he needed to come back. I want people to read your book. The nuggets in it, especially on the Arab Spring, as our listeners know, I follow the Middle East very closely, yes. and that chapter was very interesting, especially how you address the disagreements, the discussions that took place between you government. and Susan Rice yes. and Secretary of Defense Gates and so forth. Yeah. So where were you during the Helsinki summit of last July? <laughs> um, you know, well, let's just remind everybody what happened. President Trump suggested, he even volunteered that the Russian government could interrogate, question you. Yes. Where were you when you heard of this? And and what first came to your mind? I actually was in Helsinki. I work for NBC News, and so we had a big team there. Yeah. And in the NBC News world, you know, we were live on TV listening to that press conference. And my job is to provide the analysis. And just to remind your listeners, the big news out of Helsinki that we focused on that day was not about me. It was about President Trump's agreeing with Putin and disagreeing with our intelligence community about what Russia had done in 2016. So that's where the real focus was. But mm -hmm. on live TV, I'm there, you know, watching with Lester Holt. We're watching the news, figuring out what to say when Putin floats this idea and President Trump says it's a great idea. And at the time, I'll, let me be honest, because it's on tape, I gave the president a pass. I was like, he obviously doesn't understand what Putin's doing here. He doesn't know what an MLAT treaty is. He doesn't know that we don't do this. They'll straighten this out. That'll be no big deal. And that's what I said. He probably hasn't seen his diplomatic passport. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. But the thing I didn't know at the time, that I was on the list. He just yeah. said a group of Americans. Mm -hmm. It was only on the flight back that next day to Helsinki to San Francisco. My plane had Wi-Fi, and I began to get literally dozens of pings from Russian journalists not American journalists, asking me, what do I think of this idea that they not only wanted to interrogate me, but that day they made it clear that they wanted to indict me of a crime. And that's when it became serious. And unfortunately, the White House didn't come to bat for me and the rest of us right away. It took some pressure from the U.S. Senate and from the population before they finally got it right. I remember that. The title of your book is From Cold War to Hot Peace. And today seems to be a very different period from during the Cold War. Yes. There were still exchanges then, cultural and business, certainly education. And it just happens that today I had lunch with the um, director of the Meadows Museum here. He reminded me that there has not been any exchange or loan of cultural objects, yes. uh, he said, for the last eight years. Right. So this seems like, uh, in a way, a period that's more hostile and less communication. Is my perception valid? Your perception is definitely valid. We can go through, as I do in the book, about 
how things are similar and different, right? Because some things are similar, some things are different. Well, and that's deliberately why I use hot peace to echo the Cold War, but the difference. But to your precise point, I actually think it's worse than the Cold War, that the number of exchanges, the number of dialogues, the the government-to-government relations are worse. And that's scary because we're going to have disagreements with Russia and other countries. That's Mm a normal part of international politics, as you well know. But we can't have disagreements based on misunderstandings or bad information. And I worry that in today's moment, that could happen because of the lack of engagement that we have. Well, this interpretation about why Soviet Union went into Afghanistan is certainly a good example, isn't it? Well, that's a crazy story. I mean, I... I, I mean, where did the president get that information? I'm going to ask you more than one question. I actually found out on live television. I was on a show boosted by Rachel Maddow when she brought this up. And I had no idea that the Russian government Actually, let me be precise. Putin's party, it's called United Russia, is seeking to have a resolution at their next party congress to revise this history. Because for 30 years, Russian officials and Russian historians have said it was a giant mistake to go into Afghanistan. So that this is really, I just want to underscore how people in my profession were not following this debate. Hmm. And that the president somehow was informed of this revisionist history. I honestly don't know, but it's a very curious story why he would know that and people like me would not. Yeah. President Putin seems to be testing our resolve on a number of fronts. What gives you the greatest concern in 2019? Tough question, because uh, I can think of several. I still think we have not come to terms with how to deal with disinformation from external actors. Uh, and I say that as a government, as a society, we're, and so I'll, That piece, I think, we need to keep working on, and the Russians haven't stopped what they're doing. But I guess if I had to think about that my greatest concern, and I give it a low probability event, but it's a really horrible outcome if it happens. And here it is. It's not Russia rolling tanks into Tallinn, Estonia. I I don't think that's that's very unlikely to happen. But what I do worry about, two, let me me give you two, because I want to be, they're both Estonia and somewhere in the Balkans. So here's the scenario. They don't roll into Tallinn, but some Russian kids get in a fight with some Estonian kids in a a city in Estonia on the border. Some Russian, ethnic Russians get killed. Narva, you know, pick the city of Narva. It's right on the border. And then the Russian government decides to send in some special forces and they kill some Estonians and then they leave. What are we going to do then? Are we going to go to war with Russia over that? Article 5? That's a tricky, hard area. The other one I worry equally about is something happening with one of our new allies in the Balkans that I'm sure 95, maybe 99% of Americans don't even know they're a member of NATO. And there's a coup and it's all murky, not unlike what happened in Montenegro not too long ago. And the Russians are involved and the country in question says the Russians have violated our sovereignty. What's going to happen then? Are the Italians going to rally to that, or the Germans, the French, or the Americans? And that's where Putin will be testing us. He'll Mm -hmm. be testing our commitment to the NATO alliance, not with a conventional war in Tallinn, but in a very kind of murky set of circumstances in a faraway place in the Balkans that nobody even really knows is a part of NATO. Which makes it so much more challenging. Right. You know, in your introduction, you talked about how this book was challenging for you because you approached it both as a government, former government official, as a scholar, 
I just found it to be a very enjoyable read. We didn't have a chance to talk about this today. So again, another reason for people to buy your book is how you wrote so much about d democratization of Russia Great. and the Arab Spring. Michael McFall, thanks for being with us today on Global IQ Minute. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. The Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys and 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.